Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The word of the Lord. Here in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3 that Julian just read for us, there's a description of the life of faith as a race to be run. And the words that are used up here, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with perseverance or endurance the race that is set before us. And the word race there um, is also a struggle or a fight. It's translated in other um, passages of the Bible as a struggle or a fight, like fight the good fight in Timothy is that same word that's used race here. And it means a struggle in life. And the implication of it, of course, because of the endurance, is a long race. It's running a marathon. It's that idea of finishing all the way to the end, the race that is marked out for us. You don't get to choose the path. Is the path marked out for you the path that God has laid out in the life that we are called to. And the writer of the Hebrews is calling his readers to endurance, to perseverance, to run without giving up, to not be weary and lose heart. And literally it says, do not lose, uh, that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That faint-hearted at the very bottom there is actually, um, it means to collapse. It's kind of like if you're running a race and you get to the very end of the race, if you, especially if it's a marathon. I, let's just say hypothetically, if somebody had run a marathon, I wouldn't know by person, but it's like you cross that finish line and then you collapse. And it's, it's not giving up, it's you got to the end. And the writer is saying, don't collapse until you get to the end. The letter to the Hebrews was written to Rome, probably, to churches in Rome, maybe in the 60s and 70s. And the letter to the Hebrews focuses for chapter upon chapter upon the exaltation of Jesus and the sufficiency of Jesus' death on the cross. And the reason it's doing these two things is because the Hebrew people that, that it's going to, the, the letter receivers, the churches, the Christians, are weary. They're worn down. They feel like they can't handle the life they're in, and they can't handle the culture they're in in Rome. They're facing persecution, which is suffering that is unjust, completely unfair, suffering for doing what is right. We read earlier in the book of Hebrews that they were suffering economic and social hardship. So they had property taken away, they were denied jobs, they, had, um, they were socially ostracized, marginalized, out of power, people thrown in prison. And when this sort of persecution comes, his question is, will you endure or will you lose your faith? He is aware of something that is true for any of us, whether, whether it's persecution like they were facing or any hardship or suffering or challenge in life. Suffering will change you. Suffering, loss, sickness, things that have happened to you, Suffering will form and change you, and the question is, in what direction? 
It is either going to drive you away from God or it's going to draw you closer and closer to God. You will never remain the same if you go through difficulty and suffering. And the writer is aware of this. And that's why he said, basically, the race is a long race. It's a long struggle. This life, this life in the faith is a hard one. And many of you know that. Many of you know just life is hard. If you're over a certain age, you have dealt with suffering. You've dealt with loss. You've dealt with your own brokenness. You look at life ahead and sometimes wonder, can I do this? And we know it just as human beings, right? You struggle with money or a job. As you get older, here's what you will find. Your body will break down. The pinnacle of human life, according to the physical human life, is somewhere between age 15 and 21. Actually, for women, it's more like 13 to 18, and men, like 18 to 22. So everyone over 22, we're done. <laughs> it's been going downhill since you... We know this. Our bodies break down, but so do our relationships. We lose friends. Families break up. The road is hard to run. And for some of you, especially given certain ages, you look ahead and you think the road is just too long. If you've had extended singleness and you've wanted to be married, if you've wrestled with your sexuality your whole life, if you've dealt with chronic sickness or disability, you look ahead and say, I don't know that I can keep going. You know, most people don't actually abandon their faith out of an intellectual assent to, I can't believe in Christianity anymore. According to the book, The Great Dechurching, which I've quoted a few too many times the past few months, um, people are leaving the church over the past 20 years. They've kind of, by and large, been leaving the church and leaving the church in America, that is. What's interesting is the highest percentage of those abandoning Christianity are not necessarily abandoning it as their religion. They still claim some sort of like, I believe in the Nicene Creed, Apostles' Creed. Rather, what happens with most of them or has over the past 10 years is they have drifted away from Christianity. And that drift is a result of their priorities changing, and they're out of practice with the Christian faith. So they no longer prioritize being a part of a church or a church community. They're out of practice with things like maybe reading the Bible or praying in the same way that they did when they were, say, a teenager and really involved in their youth group. And they just drift. So a kid who is 16 or 17 and has a really robust faith turns into a 20-year-old who is distracted at college, turns into a 25-year-old who hasn't been in church in seven years and isn't quite sure they're a Christian or not, but they sort of claim they are. And it happens with a 30-year-old and a 50-year-old and a 70-year-old. We drift and fall away. And of course, we live in a culture where it is increasingly challenging to remain a Christian. This is one of the other things that comes up in the great de-churching, is that faithful and orthodox biblical Christianity is more and more out of step with society. And when that happens, it becomes harder. So there's uh, studies that talk about the relationship between religion and power, okay? And here's what it looks like. It's five breakdowns. One is that the religion is in power. It's running things. This has actually not really ever happened in America. This would be more like England 
in the medieval period or the church in Rome during the medieval period, or if you looked at modern-day Iran, which is a totalitarian state, but it's under an Islamic regime. So the religion is in power. Rather, what's happened mostly in America is religion was beneficial. Not in power, but beneficial. It's what got you into power. If you didn't have the right religion, you weren't going to get in power. So it was a beneficial thing to be a Christian for many centuries in, a, in America and in much of the West, for that matter. Then what happens is the next step, which has actually been most of my life, which is Christianity is tolerated, but isn't necessarily beneficial. Or at least that's been happening over the past 30 years or so. So it's tolerated. You can be a Christian if you want. Maybe don't be so fanatical about it. And it moves from that to the religion or Christianity is a problem. This is what's wrong with the world. And the next step is persecution, which can be at various levels from economic and social hardship to imprisonment and death. And so where we are in the U.S. today, by most all studies, and you could just feel it, you know it if you've lived in the West or in the U.S. for a little while, is that it's not necessarily beneficial to be a Christian and certainly not to hold to orthodox, faithful, biblical Christianity. In fact, you're a problem. You're a hindrance to our society becoming what everyone knows it should be. And yet I would be hesitant to say we are persecuted. Very hesitant to say that. But for many of us, it's just too hard. If you're 19, 17, 20, how are you going to remain a Christian if this is what it believes? The writer of the Hebrews knew that was the case for them too, and he wonders of them and of us, will we endure? How will we not lose heart? And one of the problems is that we are... You know, we've talked about loneliness in our culture, okay? So we, we talk about this a lot because it's a very prevalent issue in our culture. Like almost or a quarter of Americans often or always feel lonely. So nearly a quarter of adult Americans often or always feel lonely. Most of us, because of our modern world and its transience, have lost the, um, the network of friends that would have existed in the ancient world when you had an entire village who you grew up with or a clan that were your extended family. And not only do we no longer have that extended family village clan, one in 10 adult Americans lacks even a close friend. And on top of that, we keep pushing further into that. Why? Because we're Americans and we value independence. The goal in the US, and has been for years, this is not new, this has been like my entire lifetime, the goal is do what you want, what makes you happy. The goal of our society is to maximize personal freedom and self-expression. And we have phrases that kind of enforce this too. So there's an American phrase that might be hard to translate that is to make it. So to make it is to be financially independent. It means you have enough money where you do not need anybody else. You can pay all your bills by yourself. To make it is to be financially independent. A similar phrase is used in a negative, a, a similar Americanized phrase, which is failure to launch. That means an adult child who hasn't left the home and is not financially independent. So think about the value assumptions that are underneath those two phrases. The value assumption is money is more important than relationships. 
I would rather my kid have financial independence and be out of my house than stay in my house because, you know, that's not really achieving what our goal is, which is independence. And this plays into how we live out our life in this challenging world. One of my kids, I think it was my youngest, I mean my oldest, she had a phrase because she talked from like way too young. And it was, when she was about one, I think she, she had this phrase, and if you've had a toddler, you know this phrase, but her version of it was this, all by self, which meant she wanted to do whatever it was all by self. So if it was getting into the car at a year and a half, she wanted to do it all by self. It was eating spaghetti all by self. Going down the stairs all by self. Do not hold my hand. Do not hold the spoon. Do not help me in. I'll clip myself in all by self. And then we grow up. And we keep going all by self. Because we view independence as the ideal. To be on your own and able to take care of yourself, that's strength. And it is a lie of Satan. That is not Christianity. To be a Christian is to live lives of dependence on God and interdependence on one another. Do not believe the lie. And that's why the Hebrew writer, at the very beginning of this section, calls us to look around at the great cloud of witnesses. Verse 1 says, if we can jump to that, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run. And if you know this chapter, it follows chapter, Hebrews 12 follows chapter what? 11. Nailed it. You guys are awesome today. And Hebrews 11 is often called the hall of faith. And it's a description of the Old Testament heroes like Abraham and Sarah and Moses. And it says each one of these... Each one of these faithful men and women believed and hoped in God in spite of their circumstances. They trusted that God would fulfill his promises. And you know what they had to do? They had to wait 10, 20, 40 years to see God's fulfillment. And then they did. They held on. And so what's hard to remember is that it's not just about those guys who succeeded. It actually ends, the whole chapter 11 ends with people who suffered and died horrible deaths and did not show victory in their life. It talks about those thrown in prison, executed. It even says some were sawn in two. They didn't get anything good in this life. But both of them, both those who were dying horrible deaths and those who waited and found success in life by trust, both trusted in God. Neither fell away. All of them endured to the end. Looking at that great cloud of witnesses is our own call to remember this perspective. You are not alone. Whatever you're going through, you are not alone. And as Christians, the call is not just to look at the, um, you know, the, the Bible and say, look at all these people who have suffered and died or these people who are faithful to the end. It's actually to look at the church global and historic. Do you know there's great encouragement in the church global? In the year 1900, there were only 9 million Christians in the continent of Africa. A hundred years later, there were 
380 million Christians. And in the past 20 years, that has nearly doubled to 680 million Christians. There are more self-identifying faithful Christians in Africa than there are people in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Amen. Look at the great cloud of witnesses. Look outside of our own church. Look globally. In Nepal, they deal with extreme poverty, extreme poverty. And they are out of power. The government is hostile. Socially, it is unacceptable to be a Christian. And yet the church is growing. Pastor Rinzi Lama, who we've partnered with and we hear from, is going out planting churches, building churches, and baptizing dozens of people every couple of months. And he's been doing it for years. Did you know that in the Muslim world, there are 73 distinct movements of Christ going on right now? A movement of Christ is defined this way. A thousand or more people have been baptized within the same community group. There are 73 distinct movements of Christ in the Muslim world. And one of the fastest growing churches in the world is in Iran. Are we being persecuted? A little perspective is really helpful. And we do need to look on the past too, whether it's the Bible or actually just look at your own life. Do you know that we stand on the shoulders of giants? And we do so personally too. None of us is here by ourselves or by accident. I remember a couple of years ago that I was praying evening prayer, and it has a time in the, in the Book of Common Prayer, it has a time where it says, like, giving thanks for those who have gone before us. And for some reason, the Holy Spirit led me to give thanks for all the people who have affected my life in faith. And I remember in my praying out loud, praying out loud and giving thanks, giving thanks for Will and for Rick and for Kristen and for Kevin and for Brian, and I just went down this list for about 15 minutes, and tears were streaming down my face because I realized all the people that God had put in my life over the years, on whose shoulders I stand. I am not alone. The calling of the Hebrew writer is do not try to run it alone. In fact, he goes very explicitly in chapter 10. In chapter 10, we read, this is a couple chapters before, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful, similar language, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching, drawing near. We need to be together and be together in person. We actually do. We need to be proximate and physical and encouraging each other as fellow witnesses in Christ. A recent study came out, it was actually an academic study called Electronic Church 2.0, and it cited this. It cited that attending religious services is beneficial physically and mentally, to your physical and mental health, attending religious services, but, but it only mattered if you attended them in person. Attending virtually had no effect on mental or physical health. And in a sense, we know this, right? There is a greater encouragement from being present with somebody. And it's hard, though, because that's not how we live our lives. 
We don't need each other in our modern economy. The way you work might be at home all the time. Your meetings can be virtual. And with the phone, what else do I need in life? I can stay in my house and do everything and have everything sent to me, right? I have a, a friend that I've known for years, um, but I haven't actually seen him, hadn't seen him for six months, but I talk to him every day. I talk to him every day on a text thread with 13 other guys. And we joke and there's other things said, so I'm like, oh, you know, I've been in touch with him, hanging out with him essentially for six months until last weekend when we got together for two hours. Went, and got a, went to Hawk and Griffin and then went to the first half of a football game at Madison. And just being with him in person for two hours was so much more encouraging, such a deeper connection, so much more human than six months worth of daily text threads. We have a necessity for community if we're going to endure in this race. And you know this if you do any kind of physical activity. I don't, so I'm going to do this hypothetically. <laughs> in bicycle racing, um, if you do like the Tour de France, the Tour de France has this thing called a peloton. A peloton is the large group of people that are all racing at the same speed. And it's way easier to be in the peloton because there's a wind draft that happens, and you're exerting far less energy keeping up a really high speed. To break out ahead of everyone is incredibly challenging. To stay in the peloton is way easier. And when Peloton, the uh, home bicycling exercise uh, equipment came on, it was basically trying to encourage you to see somebody else racing with you and to challenge your friends. So it was a virtual version of that same thing. This is what CrossFit is built on and many other exercise classes, is the idea of encouraging one another by being present together and kind of driving each other on to things that are really challenging. It is the foundation of AA. You will not be sober on your own. You need a community of people that are running and wrestling and fighting with you. We know this. And that means that we, as a local church, and you and I as individuals, need to build community. Thick community. And that involves trusting other people. But in order to trust, you actually have to commit. Commit to a place, commit to people, and be together more and more and more in person so that you can build the kind of honesty and vulnerability that will enable us as a church, for instance, to become a hospital of healing for people who are really broken and struggling and a home, a place of safety for all of us to grow in our faith. We have a cloud of witnesses and we need each other and we need Jesus. That's what the Hebrew writer says in chapter 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance, looking to Jesus, verse 2, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So that phrase, looking to Jesus, it's one of those sort of odd phrases. I was reflecting on it with my small group earlier this week. What does it even mean to look to Jesus? You know, do, do you need an icon of Jesus in your room? Do you need like the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus? You want to just imagine him in your head, sweet little baby Jesus in the cradle? Like, what, look to Jesus. What does that actually mean, right? Well, based on the context here, it's, it doesn't just mean that, obviously. 
It means focus on, meditate on what Jesus has done for us. And when you do and let that sink in, it transforms your view of yourself and of the world around you. That's why Jesus, it says here, is the founder and perfecter of our faith. That word founder is is the, the word for a champion who fights for you, like David who goes and fights Goliath on behalf of Israel so that they don't have to fight. He's the one who has fought for us, who has made it all happen. Not only has he made it all happen, he has completed it all. That's what perfecter is. It's not Jesus was perfect as a human being, though he was. The word here is telos, which means goal or end, finish. He's the one who finished it. He said it on the cross himself in his final breath. It is finished. No more needs to be done. Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Redemption has been accomplished. Apply it. Because of the cross of Christ, I can know this. If I go through hardship or loss or suffering or even persecution, it's not because God doesn't love me. Jesus himself suffered, and God loved his son Jesus. And I can trust God even if I don't understand what's happening in my life because I know that God loves me. And we get this more explicitly when we look at Jesus' joy. This is an interesting phrase that I think I've read one way for a long time because there was a natural way that I read this, but I want us to think about a second alternative way that the commentaries go back and forth, but I'm leaning towards another one is this. It's who for the joy set before him Endure the cross, scorning, despising the shame. So Jesus endured the cross with all of the horribleness of the cross because he, he had his eyes fixed, his own eyes fixed on some joy set before him. What is the joy set before him? Is it that he would, on the far side of the cross, be seated at the right hand of the throne of God? That's what I thought. Or is it because he was founding and perfecting our faith and the cross was the way to it or through it to get there? Was he looking ahead and saying, I can endure this cross because I'll be with the Father and everything will be great for me? I think that was true. But I think the joy that was set before him was that on the far side of the cross, salvation would be accomplished for all of us. Then he would have perfected the faith. When Jesus is in Gethsemane, looks ahead to the cross and prays, is there another way? And his other way that he's talking about is, is there another way to accomplish salvation for humanity? Not, is there another way I can get to heaven to be with you, Father? And we know this as well because of John 17, the high priestly prayer. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus is very aware that he is going to go to be with the Father. He says, you and I are one, and I'm coming to be with you. All of that is true, but my greatest joy is that they would experience the joy with me. I want them to come too. That's what I'm living for, and my prayer is that they would be a part of the same thing. I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves, that on the far side of the cross, they too would experience the fullness of your love for them. So to put this another way altogether, When Jesus looked at the cross, he looked past it to something that gave him greater joy. To every single person whose lives would experience redemption, 
forgiveness, healing, and eternity. And so he endured the cross. It's not out of the question to think that if Jesus is God's son, that in those moments of hanging on the cross, he is picturing every single human being who would come to faith. And your very face might have flashed before Jesus' eyes, and he said, yes, I will do it for that. Of course I will do it for that. It was his greatest joy. Jesus' greatest joy is you and me. There is so much power in letting that sit with you to know that you are more loved in Jesus than you can ever imagine. And so when he calls us to fix our eyes, to look to Jesus, in verse 2 it says, focus, fix your eyes on Jesus, decidedly looking away from everything else as a source of hope or joy or love or satisfaction and looking decidedly to Jesus and nothing else. But it's not what we actually do. We instead look to our circumstances. We look around ourselves all the time. Do I have friends? Am I lacking friends? Do I have money? Are my investments good? Am I lacking those? Are my kids doing well? How do other people view me? We look at our circumstances. We don't look to Jesus. And that's because we're looking at either our circumstances or ourselves. We try to solve everything or we catastrophize, we assume the worst is going to happen. And we know that we all need perspective. When we're going through hard times in life, we need perspective, but the perspective that we're called to is Jesus, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In other words, to live focused on Jesus, your whole life headed towards Jesus, is to live out of your true identity and not your false identity. Our false identity when we're dealing with hardship or challenge will kind of wrestle with us and say, well, you deserve this. Or, obviously God doesn't love you. Or you need to take control of it yourself. You can't trust God. And then hopelessness and fear take over. But our true identity is who I am because of Jesus Christ. That I am loved, forgiven, destined for eternity, a child of God, beloved no matter what. And when my mind is fixed on things that are true, do you know what happens? Even in the midst of challenges, my emotions are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. When I'm not fixed on Jesus and my true identity, you know what my emotions are in the midst of hardship? Fear. Shame, despair, anger, anxiety. A guy I listened to a couple years ago, a friend passed on a message by him. His name is Jamie Winship, and he worked as a missionary in Muslim worlds. Before that, he was in the CIA. Before that, he was a police officer. And he tells the story of one young man that they had been discipling, a Christian, or not a Christian, a believer in Jesus who was of a Muslim background, and he got picked up by the authorities in the country in which he lived. And because he was claiming to follow Jesus, they began to torture him. They wrapped him in plastic and dehydrated him during the day and hung him up at night and began cutting him with razors, demanding that he renounce Jesus. And every time they cut him, he heard Jesus whispering, I am inside your pain. 
every time they cut you, more of me comes out. You know what his emotion was as they were cutting him? Joy. And as these guys are cutting him, they realize this guy is enjoying this. We're either going to have to kill him or let him go. The problem is he seems to want us to kill him. And he did. Because when Jesus was saying to him, I am inside your pain, you know what he kept saying as he's hanging there? Move around in front of me so I can see your face. So I can see more of you. What do I have to do to see more of you? He was crying out. And he heard Jesus saying, you'd have to come with me. So what do you think he wanted to do? He wanted to go. These authorities realized if we kill him, it's going to be the greatest joy of his life. <laughs> so they said, we're going to let you go. You know what his response was? No! <laughs> I want to be with Jesus. This guy was 25 years old and had come to faith in Jesus one year earlier. You know what he realized? To live is Christ. To die is gain. Show me a 25-year-old who's like that, and I'll follow them. Where do you get this kind of fearlessness or joy in the midst of suffering or danger, your life being on the line? It is not by fixing your life, your mind, on your investments and having a secure portfolio. It is not going to be in worrying about whether your friends like you or are going to forget you. It's not. It's not going to be living for the most comfortable, easy life or just living for your own happiness. It's fixing your eyes on Jesus, living for and running to him and desiring him more and more and more. And it's what I want to do. I want to run to Jesus. I want to finish well. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary or lose heart or give up. That's the race we're running. It's the race I'm running, and I want you to run it with me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, life is very hard. It's harder and harder to follow you. And some of us in here are dealing with such shame and pain and fear and struggle and we wonder if we can make it to the end. Oh, fix our eyes on you, Jesus. Fix our lives on you. Remind us of the depth of your love for us, that we can trust you, and you will bring it to completion, and you will see us to the end. Amen. How long?
turn your face away.